Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Today my guest is Aiden Wing. Aiden owns and runs Wings of Nature, a company based in San Mateo County, California, United States. They produce honey, nukes, queens, provide education, pollination services, and they have a line of queens that has been sourced partly from the surrounding area, so they're preserving locally adapted traits. Aiden, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, I'm so happy to be here. Great. So tell us how you got into queen breeding. So um, I kind of um, came to beekeeping in general kind of by mistake. And uh, it was I was lucky that very early on in my beekeeping career, I was introduced to queen breeding. Um, I became a beekeeper because I walked out of my cabin door one day and basically walked into a beekeeper. My um, neighbor was walking by with this guy and introduced me and said he was a beekeeper looking for uh, locations to put hives and he was interested in the property we lived in. So I got to talking to this guy and he offered me to come out for a few days of labor. And when I came out, I was just blown away by, by, by these honeybees, you know, and he kept asking me back. So I kept working for him. and. Soon it became a full-time thing and eventually I started my own company. But when I first started um, working for him, he hired um, the folks from Zia Queen Bee, um, Melanie Kirby and Mark Spitzig, who live in New Mexico, to come out and do some consulting about um, queen breeding. He was hoping to have them there that following spring to kind of... Um, run a queen operation for him. So very early on, I met folks who were very engaged in um, queen breeding, and it became very evident to me the importance of queen breeding as part of running an apiary, of part of um, you know the true uh, sustainability of beekeeping, because like any good animal husbandry, um, understanding reproduction of the species, and beyond that, breeding of the species, was uh, very important. So um, pretty early on in, in beekeeping, I started experimenting with uh, bee breeding, or at least a queen rearing, I should say, and just got more and more into it over the years. Uh, my friends Mark and Melanie from Zia Queen Bee would come out every spring to do con consultation for other uh, beekeepers in California, and they'd often stop by, and we'd do some projects together. They introduced me to another woman named Megan Mahoney, who was working for Queen Breeders in California as well. And we, me and her became fast friends and learned a lot from her. And um, as well as the guy I worked for when I first ha uh, had a job beekeeping, introduced me to um, Pat and Russell Hykem of Hykem's Honeybees in, in uh, Orland, California, and was able to kind of glean a lot of important information from them as well. I've been doing it ever since. Excellent. And so you're uh, producing bees that are very specific to your area. Tell us how you have established those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I really believe in um, local adaption. Um, even in the region that I live in, um, I see the vast amount of microclimates and the different ways that bees interact with their environment. Um, um, and so to me, it's, it's made sense that, you know, a, a bee from a cold region of the world might not do as well in a place with mild winters and, um, and, um, you know, hot summers or, or, or vice versa, you know, and just as within other plant breeding and animal breeding, um, you know, over the millenniums, us humans have really created, um, animals and plants that are really well adapted to a certain area. So I really truly believe in, um, kind of the local adaption, uh, philosophy. Um, so what that kind of means to me is, is, um, just observation of honeybees and seeing what works well in your climate, what, what winters well, what makes it through dearths well, what, um, what maintains the right size nests for splitting and, and, um, pollination, um, what can survive on less than, you know, less external, um, feed. And so over the years, I've, um, gotten a lot of stock from wild honeybees that are in my area. Um, I've always thought it's fascinating to see, you know, sometimes we can have managed hives that are, um, struggling so much and depending on so many, um, human intervention to, uh, to maintain them to healthy levels. And yet sometimes you open up a house or look in a tree cavity and you see a hive that is with no human intervention. It's just managed to stay healthy, managed to stay, um, relatively free of diseases and keep low mite numbers and have enough nutrition to last through dearths and winters and such and so forth. So I think that's always an inspiring, you know, uh, um, metaphor, I guess, is how can these these wild bees, you know, look so look so good when sometimes the managed bees need so much help. But um, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of different bee breeders, so I really enjoy introducing other um, other people's specialty queens or lines into my own and seeing how they react to my environment and seeing how they, um, they, um, you know, cross with my own bees, which are all automated. So what specific traits are you looking for when you, um, buy breeder queens? Um, I think, you know, really what it, one, one of the things that's like the most important to me is, um, mite resistance. And I think, you know, we've had mites in this country for, you know, 30 something years now. And that's just a blip of time on a, on a kind of evolutionary scale. And really, I feel like if, if you left your bees, you know, most, most stocks of honeybees, if you leave them, you know, without any mite mitigation, you'll just 
the the um, losses are just astronomical, you know. And they do so much damage to honeybees on a physiological level as well as, you know, being the vectors of viruses. And so any type of bee that has any kind of leg up in the evolution uh, against, um, against, you know, the pestilence of Varroa mite is immediately, you know, a big priority to me. Because it takes so much of our time and energy just to... Um, find some kind of equilibrium between bees and mites through management, you know? So that's definitely all a top priority, particularly in breeding for me. But beyond that, um, I really don't like to wear a big suit most of the time. I like working bees in the spring in a t-shirt and a veil. And so I want nice bees. And also if I'm keeping these bees for a business, which is producing nukes and honey, so I also want productive bees. If I had a bees that were amazingly mite resistant, but they just lived in these little teeny colonies and absconded and couldn't produce honey or enough brood to make splits, then that's kind of beside the point of doing this as a business. So how are you maintaining the lines that you're using? So when I, when I first started um, breeding bees, I had this concept in my mind that like, you know, you would start breeding bees and um, at, at, you, would, you would have your goal in mind and at some point you would attain your goal and have this like eureka moment of like your bees are this amazing, you know, you've, you've reached the goal, you've created this line and that's that. But the longer I've done it, I've really began to view bee breeding as a journey and I believe that um, it's almost like a conversation between the bee breeder, the bee, and the environment. Um, it's never going to reach a moment where you're going, okay, yeah, we have the line, it's, it's good, we're done. It's a conscious act of breeding continually over the years. So by repeating, this, by repeating um, similar you know, breeding selection protocol, year to year by um by um adapting and um always looking for for new ways to breed or make it more be more efficient or um um hone in on your selection so i believe you know the lines are always changing and that's kind of part of the beauty of the journey of bee breeding it's 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 uh it's an ever-moving journey. And before I started recording, we were talking a little bit about how we're both fans of using your entire apiary or many of yeah. your apiaries as your breeding stock. So every hive that you have is a potential breeder and using uh, the yeah. genes in amongst all of your colonies as potential breeders. That's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, um, I, I, um, I run a couple hundred colonies and, um, you know, by at the, at the beginning of the year, we'll start, you know, by looking at all these colonies as potential breeders and you start to very quickly see hives that you, you know, monitor hives that you, you see are highly potential and other hives that are just not making the cut. 
So it, it's pretty quick that it go, you know, it dumbs down to a, it whittles down to a much smaller, um, much smaller nucleus of hives that you want to use in your in your breeding. I do a lot of work with uh, Mike, Mike, uh, Mark Spitzig of the Queen Bee, and this last year uh, he had an idea that I thought was a really good idea. Um, our hives are overwintered, and you know they go for a few months of not not being checked, and then they suddenly get opened, kind of in the late winter, early spring, and at that point they've started raising drones, and they often are making their drone comb in between the boxes. And when you open up an overwintered colony, often that drone comb breaks and exposes the pupa. And so what we started doing last year for the first time was every time we'd open up a colony and we'd see that white drone pupa, immediately you can see the little red mites on them. And some of them have them and some of them don't. So it was almost an immediate like, oh, if we start out seeing uh, mites in the drone people right away, we're going to mark that and take that into account. And if we don't, we're going to mark that and take that into account. And that's uh, taking something that we're already doing. We're already going and doing our first spring inspection. We're not doing any extra work for the breeding, but just by taking a little bit of data from, from that observation, we get a whole start on the whole breeding process of the year. They love putting drones in between the boxes, don't they? Yeah, they like, you know, unless you put in specific drone comb, you know, they like to make that drone comb wherever they can. Yeah, well, I, I like to put in specific drone cone and even still, they still like to put it between the boxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even when you do put the drone comb in, they'll still make it between boxes. I've got this one particular drone mother that I was just checking it yesterday and I put the drone cone in about a month ago and they haven't touched it, but they've put drone cone between the boxes. <laughs> it's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you do a lot of, uh, bee work with your kids. Can you tell us what it's like, uh, doing beekeeping with your kids? Got any tips for us? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I started beekeeping when my son was about six months old. And um, so my kids have been raised their entire life around around bees and, and the bee business. And like most farming families, um, they've been very much, you know, included by default in, in the family business. And over the years, the kids have learned to be quite um, good little beekeepers. Um, so there's been moments where they're not happy to be the uh the children of a beekeeper that's for sure but there's other times when they've been uh it's you know a beautiful beautiful life that we have together where we can um work hand in hand and definitely um hands down my my kids favorite job is catching queens and so during the spring throughout um uh queen season when it's a queen catching day, I'll bring my kids out. They love going through the mating nukes because they're, they're small and so gentle, you know. Most of the time, you know, they don't even wear, wear a veil. And they've got it down to where they can, um, 
they can open up a nuke and find the queen typically faster than I can. And so on queen catching day, I've got a nice little crew. Uh, this year they've, they're uh, 11 and 13. My son Jelani's 13. My son, uh, my daughter Kiara is 11. And um, they'll go through and open the nukes, find a queen. They'll bring me over the comb with the queen on it and point her out. I'll catch um, and mark the queen and cage the queen. And they'll reassemble the nuke, feed, and they move so fast, the two of them together, that sometimes I don't even have a chance to open nukes. I'm just continually catching the queens that they bring me and caging them. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to work with family. It's good to have the kids involved. That's fantastic. Are you using those little polystyrene mating nukes? What's, what's really standard here in California is the mini mating nuke, which is a little styrofoam uh, nuke with a little, few little small combs. We're using a, um, a size that's um, a bigger than that. It's basically a half of a half of a shallow comb, three combs that are the size of a half of a shallow. And those are versatile because um, you can make a box that fits 20 of those combs and it fits directly onto a, um, a standard sized colony. So if in the early spring you're needing, you know, to get bees on that comb and get brood on those combs, you can um, put it in between the boxes of a strong colony and they'll start laying eggs in that and, you know, rearing brood that you can then use in your mating newt. And I find that um, with that, that size, which is quite a small size, but not as small as the mini mating nukes, is they, um, they just have a little bit more autonomy as an actually functioning colony. I, I feel that they are, they're able to have a little bit bigger population, that they actually have foragers bringing in nectar and pollen and they, I feel that it's a little bit better care of the queen because of that than the really, really small ones. And they're the same material as the small ones? No, we actually use wooden ones. Okay. They do make styrofoam of that size. Um, companies like Man Lake over here make a styrofoam box, which is um, may, may even be a superior product because of the insulation of styrofoam. But I just personally cannot stand uh, using that much styrofoam in my operation. I live in the forest. There's lots of wood around. Styrofoam just doesn't have the same feel to me. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Okay, so can you recommend any queen breeding resources that you've used over the years? Yeah, um, say... um. The, the best the best resource is just community you know um being part of um be, being part of a community of other bee breeders has really been hands down the best tool the the best resource that i've um had ability to i was feel very lucky in that as I kind of described earlier, um, my connections with the Queen Bee and Megan Mahoney of Mahoney Queen Bees um, 
also um, some of the larger California um, bee breeders like the Hycombs honeybees and the Pankratz family of Can-Am apiaries. Um, so making friends in the industry, I found that um, people have been amazingly willing to, uh, to share that instead of holding, kind of holding their secrets and um, keeping their trade secrets close to their chest, it's been quite the opposite. People have been very welcoming. People have been happy to take phone calls um, when problems have come up. Um, you know, they've been happy to offer solutions, happy to offer used equipment for sale, such and so forth. So just community, um, there's, there's both, you know, community, kind of natural community like that, making friends, but also, um, you know, there are, there are groups, um, special interest groups, conferences and stuff like that. Just recently we started a group in the States called ABBA, which I believe is the American Bee Breeders Association. And uh, my friend Melanie Kirby kind of spearheaded that. And it's, it's a relatively new, no, it's not the American, it's the Adaptive Bee Breeders Association. And uh, it's a new, um, kind of a new group that we've created to talk about some of the things that we face. And um, we've had online meetings, but we're having our first official meeting this winter at the uh, American Beekeeping Federation Conference in Florida. That's so, a great acronym. Uh, I bet it gets yeah, a little bit of ABBA. confusion. Pretty easy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so is there anything you're currently working on that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, um, I guess uh, one, one, thi one thing that I'd like to talk about that we um, didn't, I just maybe rewind and talk about this that kind of leads to the present is um, um, in 2019, I was able to get a grant through um, SARE, which is uh, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education here in the States. And I got a grant to kind of design a breeding program. And in, in a really short way, I, what I learned is the first thing I did was I designed a very complicated bee breeding program where we uh, looked at um, these minute, you know, I wanted to look at every month at um, nosema spores and, um, you know, just really intricate things like that. But in a nutshell, what I learned from uh, this grant was that actually simplicity is 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 the best way to actually achieve goals as a bee breeder um if you get too complicated and too heady you may never ever be able to achieve what you've set forth to do the more you can kind of simplify your breeding protocol and simplify your desired traits you're going to have much more success in reaching those goals and one of those things that uh um i really felt I learned through this grant was that, you know, as beekeepers, you, you, you go into your apiary and you'll just see one or two hives that you're like, oh, these are, I love these hives. These are my favorite hives in this apiary. And then you monitor all your hives. 
um, write down whatever data is important to you in your breeding program. And often at the very end of the year, it's those few hives that you've just loved all along were your best hives. So we have a lot of intuition um, as beekeepers um, that can really direct some of the bee breeding work we do. We know what a good hive looks like. And actually by kind of simplifying things, sometimes we can attain our goals much more. That's excellent. Thanks, Aiden. Yeah. So tell us where we can find you online. Well, I have a website that's wingsofnaturebees.com. I'm more of a hands-on bee guy than an internet guy, but every now and again, I update things to have pertinent information. Send out a newsletter. You can subscribe. I have an Instagram account and a Facebook account, which is wings at wings of nature bees. So uh, I try and post fun pictures every now and again and kind of show the projects I'm working on. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, good luck getting through the, the bogs and the mud. <laughs> and, uh, California, we say we have two seasons, the fire season and the mud season. So stay dry, but not too dry. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Aiden. Really good piece of advice there. He said that our best resource is our collaboration. I thought that was a really interesting and good point. If you want to get in touch with Aiden, you can at wingsofnaturebees.com. Jump on there and see what he's been up to. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. And until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>